This morning, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23, page 276 of the Blue Bibles, or you can find our passage this morning in your bulletin. And indeed, uh, as you can see, we are coming to the end of uh, 2 Samuel. We've got this sermon today, and then in two weeks, I'm off this week and not preaching next Sunday, but in two weeks, we'll look at chapter 24, and that will conclude uh, this journey through this book that has been uh, at times glorious uh, in the beginning and at times really tough uh, that nevertheless allowed us to see our Lord Jesus Christ and the mercy that he has shown but it's had some tough chapters in it uh, and tough history in it as uh, well. Today what we've got before us is a section from the conclusion uh, by way of reminder that compares to, that is parallel to, the end of chapter 21. Now, we didn't read the end of chapter 21, uh, and that's because while the details are different than what I'm reading for us today, the themes are the same. So I'm kind of collecting up the themes uh, from both of them in uh, our sermon today. These are uh, the heroic exploits of David's mighty men. That's what we have before us. And friends, we are called to fight the good fight, to run the race that God has set before us. Others have fought it, others have run it before us, and now be encouraged and humbled as you hear of their deeds and the victories that God gave to them. So let me read from uh, verse 8 and then continuing on. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph Bashebeth, the Tachamanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord 
and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzael, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two Ariels of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, you see that the passage continues. I am sparing uh, both myself and you uh, from reading a longer list of difficult names that are there. But it goes on to name these men. Uh, and it concludes, and I'll just mention this one in particular as we did earlier uh, when we were considering it. It concludes the list with Uriah, the Hittite, the last one that is mentioned here. Our title today is Cum Laude. Let's pray. Lord God, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. From the moment when Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in May of 1940, he realized that two things were going to be absolutely critical for the survival of the British Empire, and if the empire was to have any chance in defeating Nazi Germany, there were two things that were necessary. The first is what you would expect. He needed all of Britain to be united in this great conflict that was before them. He needed every single man, woman in Britain to be strengthened and to be courageous and to be energetic, to be people of endurance in the midst of this time when they would be afflicted. afflicted. Everybody had to unite together. But Churchill also recognized that even were that the case, even if everybody did all they could in Britain, and even if everybody was united in Britain, that that alone wouldn't be enough. He needed to have somebody to stand with him. He needed to have help in this. And so Churchill also appreciated the importance of getting the United States involved in the war as well. To support the effort as much as was possible to join in the fight was his ultimate goal. Churchill perceived the threat that existed to all of culture with Nazi Germany, and he thought, America, you have to be in this fight. You have to be part of this fight. He made countless appeals to Roosevelt, 
And finally, Roosevelt sent his closest advisor to London to meet with Churchill and to assess the situation. Harry Hopkins was his name. And upon his arrival into London, Churchill, recognizing the significance of the moment, the significance of the man, the access that the man had to, Rose had to Roosevelt, Churchill spent as many waking hours as he possibly could courting, courting this man, courting the U.S. through Harry Hopkins. And at one point, they're in uh, Scotland, having traveled around a bit over the course of a week. And they're at a meal in Scotland, and uh, in this meal, there are various speeches that are being made by the people who uh, are gathered together, and it, it works its way around the table, and it comes to the point where Hopkins is about to speak. And Eric Larson, in his uh, biography of Churchill, uh, The Splendid and the Vile, writes the scene like this. Then he turned to face Churchill, I suppose you wish to know what I'm going to say to President Roosevelt on my return, he said. This was an understatement. Churchill was desperate to know how well his courtship of Hopkins was progressing and what indeed he would tell the president. Well, Hopkins said, I'm going to quote you one verse from that book of books in the truth of which Mr. Johnston's mother and my own Scottish mother were brought up. Hopkins dropped his voice to a near whisper and recited a passage from the Bible's book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Then he added softly, even to the end. This was his own addition, and with it a wave of gratitude and relief seemed to engulf the room. Churchill wept. He knew what it meant, his doctor wrote. Even to us, the words seemed like a rope thrown to a drowning man, wrote another man. It may have been indiscreet for Hopkins to show his partisanship in this way, but it moved us all deeply. The English poet John Donne wrote a phrase that all of us know, no man is an island. And indeed, that's what our passage teaches us today. David wasn't an island. He was, in fact, uniquely God's anointed king. But he wasn't alone. He had the support of powerful men, of mighty men and allies. The Lord was with David, and the Lord supported David through these men of whom we just read. Remember, Adam wasn't alone, at least he wasn't alone for long, and Naomi wasn't alone, although she felt alone. Elijah wasn't alone, although he thought he was alone. Britain, Churchill weren't alone, wouldn't be alone although for a while they felt like they were alone. And David wasn't alone. The Lord raised up and provided strong men who became a band of brothers to stand around and with David, the Lord's anointed. 
And God used these men to accomplish extraordinary feats. Extraordinary feats for David and for Israel. And while I intend to talk about these men today, I don't want us to lose track of what is said in verses 10 and 12. So let me just say this right at the get-go, right from the front of this. In verse 10, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And again in verse 12, the Lord worked a great victory. And the word for victory here is also the word, it's appropriately translated victory, but it is the word for salvation. The Lord saved on this day. And so the message is that which we have seen as we have considered together 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Judges before, Joshua before that. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what the text is saying. That's right there. It is the Lord who gave the victory. Or to put it in other words, the battle is the Lord's. Right? Those, those were the words that were on David's lips as he got up to approach Goliath to say, the battle is the Lord's, and this day, this day he will give you into my hand. The battle is the Lord. It's true for David. It's true here in our text, to God be the glory. Now, having said that, that does not in any way negate the evident fact that God trains and equips, gifts, strengthens, and emboldens his people for service. That's what we've got set before us in the text. Service that is worthy of honor. How about thinking about it this way? What we have before us in this text, and if chapter 21, and chapter 21 as well, if we care to turn there also, we have an honor roll that is set before us. This is an honor roll that is here. When writing to the Philippians, and let me just put this in New Testament terms for us for just a moment. I've preached on this a couple of times, but when writing to the Philippians, Paul is sending back to them the man they had sent to Paphroditus, and then Timothy is going to come as well. And Paul writes these words, kind of commending them as they're going back to, the, to Philippi. He says, so receive him in the Lord, that is Epaphroditus, with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me. He nearly died. David said, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Paul's command to the Philippians was this, honor such men, honor them. Cum laude is the title of our sermon today. I did it only because it's graduation season, uh, and I thought, well, there you go. Graduation season, cum laude is a good thing uh, to talk about, of course, with honors, uh, with praise, with distinction, uh, or magna cum laude, with high honors, praise, distinction, uh, or summa cum laude, with the highest praise and honor and distinctions. The scriptures aren't, just to be clear with this at the outset, they're not in any way trying to suggest that these men uh, were perfect or necessarily, Nick, to use your word, that they were superheroes, uh, always getting things right and always acting in the right and good and noble way. That is not the suggestion here at all. 
But it is saying that what they did is noteworthy. It's praiseworthy to recount the deeds that these men did. In the words of Revelation, their deeds follow them. This is the verse that I put on the front of your bulletin. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, just to connect this with the service as a whole, this is for all the saints, right? For all the saints who from their labors rest, with their deeds now following them. That's what's happening to these men right here. We're recounting their deeds. Their deeds are following them, following them in the history of the church, following them into the kingdom of heaven as well. Ralph Davis writes this, I think, just helpful little sentence about this passage before us today. He writes, their names are here because they excelled in their calling, end quote. Their names are here because they excelled in their calling. And because they excelled in their calling, they have left us this legacy, this heritage which we consider today. Now, you don't need me to try and go through each one of these stories and tell you what they did. I just read it. You can read it as well. And I would encourage you to do that and to let your imaginations go a little bit. Let your imaginations go. These are very briefly stated here, right? And imagine the scene that is taking place in a very brief description that we find in the Word. But you heard it. You know, de defeating hundreds, slaying so many people for so long that your hand has to be pried off of the sword because it's stuck together, clasping the sword, defending and taking your stand in a field of lentils and saying, in effect, no, no, no. Everybody else may have run away. Everybody else may have fled the scene right now. But this is our land. These are our lentils. This is God's provision for our people, and you shall not pass. This stops right here. I stand in this place and say, no more. No more advance takes place today or in this place. Striking down a lion in the snow. Killing two Ariels. Did you catch that one? There we go. Oh, yeah, I know what an Ariel is. No, no one knows what an Ariel is. That's why it's called, translated or just transliterated Ariel right here. It sounds like the word for lion. It's very similar to it. And since it's right next to having killed a lion, some wonder, is it two lions uh, that were killed? Is it two lion-like men that were killed? Is it two sons of a man named Ariel uh, is probably the closest thing uh, that we've got to it. But striking them down. And, of course, a handsome Egyptian mercenary as well. As, uh, as you may know, over the course of the years, my favorite stories, one of my most favorite stories in all of the Bible is actually the story of the men getting water from Bethlehem. Those are the deeds that are there. But, but allow me to lead us today in asking a few other questions of this text that I think will help us to understand 
and appreciated here. First of all, the question, where did these men come from? Where did he get these guys who were all around him? Now, we can say literally where they are from. Their names are listed here in places uh, of their hometowns are listed here. Uh, many are from Judah, some are from other parts of Israel, and some are foreigners. So that's literally where they came from. But to understand how they got to be his mighty men and how they assembled around David, I want to take us back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 22 describes the, the time when David is in flight from Saul and he flees to the cave. And let me read just two verses then for you. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Listen to that description carefully. Everyone who was in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. It's a beautiful picture, right? It's a beautiful picture, and it reminds us of how God assembles his people. From David's men to the disciples of Jesus, our Lord, to the Corinthian church, to us. That verse is a description of why we look the way we look, because we're that part, we're that crew of people. God, and this is to quote from Corinthians, God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. And God chooses what is low and despised so that we would stop what is so innate to us, and that is thinking about ourselves and our prideful, sometimes loud, sometimes quiet boasting that goes on in our hearts about ourselves. That's why God chooses in that order. These men that David has, these mighty men of whom we read, they didn't go to West Point. They didn't go to any of the academies. Remember when the, the Pharisees are, are talking about Jesus' disciples, they perceived that they were what? Uneducated men. They're, they're, they're fishermen, right? These are, these are uneducated men. They're looking down upon them. These guys, whatever you want to say, they're rough around the edges. Okay? They are, they are rough and tough guys. They're weak. They're battered. They're sinners whom God chose and God equipped. And I think that that in and of itself should give all of us hope. It should give every single person, man, woman, child, in this room, hope. To say, if God can take these people and use them to do these kinds of things, well, what does that say about us? What can God do through you, through us? What can he do? Now, the second question that I have is, what bound them together? That's where they came from. What bound them together? What united them? What forged their brotherhood? Now this is where the account of the water from Bethlehem is 
so precious. So the three men, I imagine the scene around a campfire, the three men are sitting there and they hear this longing coming from the mouth of David. David is longing for a taste of home. A taste of home, right? The water that he remembers from his childhood, from the particular well that is near the gate that is by Bethlehem. That's what he's looking for. That's what he is longing for, is that water. But he's not issuing a command, okay? He, he's not saying, you guys go and get me that water. That's critical to understand in this story that he's not issuing a command here. He's just expressing what we'll call a heart desire. And I imagine that these guys are sitting around and they hear it. And they don't want to make a big deal about it, but they're just sitting there and one looks up and looks at the other and gives a little nod of the head and, and says, I'm in. Are, are you in? And, and all, it's, it's not verbalized, right? Looks at the next one, you in, you in? And, and, and there's just a nod of the head that says, all right, we got it. When David's gone to sleep, we've got a job to do. They get together afterwards and they say, this is us. We've got this. This is now our job. We're going to do this. Let's roll. Let's roll and go in there. I think it reveals what the bonds were that held these people together. And those bonds were two things, purpose and person. Purpose and person, those two things linked together. These men were drawn to David and drawn together by David. David was the anointed one. The Spirit of God was upon him. He spoke and he sang the words of God. Remember of Jesus, they said, no one's ever taught like this. No one's ever spoken like this before. David's the anointed one, the great psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he is attracting people to himself. He was a warrior. He was full of faith and courage. And he had a vision for his people, a vision for Israel that God had given to him, the worshipers and the warriors for the living God. He cared for sheep and he cared for people. He cared for Israel and people saw that in him and it drew them. His person and the purpose that he had as the Lord's anointed drew people to himself. David was magnetic because God magnetized him. David was charismatic because of the charisma, and here charisma not defined modern, defined ancient, because of the grace gifts that God had given to him. Yeah, I'm looking at you. That's what drew people to David. God had placed those things upon him. David was unique as the Lord's anointed, but that uniqueness connected him to his people. There were some ways which, as the Lord's anointed, he was clearly distinct and different from others who were around him. But, but he was connected to his people for his people. And Jesus is the same. Jesus also attracted people to him, people of all sorts, people that other people maybe thought he shouldn't have 
attracted to him or shouldn't be hanging around him because they were a little rough around the edges. They weren't all smoothed out. They were rough. And Jesus summoned them and he called them. Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw people to myself. And in this way, the purpose and the mission of David and Jesus become the uniting, the unifying purpose of their followers as well. They would fight and die and suffer and do great deeds and get a cup of water and get it from Bethlehem if needed because of the person, the Lord's anointed, and because of the purpose of the anointed. Jesus then unites people to himself and then he draws them together and says, as I've loved you, now you love one another. And then he takes them and gives them the missions and the mission and says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. It's the person and the purpose. The third question that I've got is how shall we describe these men and their deeds? What kind of language should we use to depict their character as described from these events? And my answer to that is that we should use some of the very best words. The best words, words like in the hymn, faithful, true, and bold. Words like loyal and devoted. One writer calls them radically loyal. A radical loyalty is demonstrated by these men. They were devoted. They were devoted to David. They were devoted to David's cause. They were devoted to David's Lord. They were devoted to David's people. They were men of conviction and of resolve. They were resolute. They were men who stood, who stood their ground. Uh, I rewatched recently Bridge of Spies. I don't know if you've seen Bridge of Spies or not, but if you have, perhaps you remember the, the term that the Russian spy gives to the Tom Hanks character. He's the standing man. The standing man. And, and these are standing men who are described for us here. They stand. They are resilient. They're stout-hearted, they are courageous, they are valiant, they are worthy of honor. And I want to add one more thing. They were lovers. David taught them how to love, imperfectly to be sure. But compare and contrast for a moment Joab and David. Joab was ruthless, right? We've seen that throughout this book. He was a ruthless killer. He liked power. And anybody who stood in his way was seriously in danger. David waited, waited for the Lord to give him the kingdom, didn't seek to grasp it himself, and David is the singer. David is the lover. I love you, O Lord, my strength. There's a difference in the motivation. David led these men in love for God and love for each other, in love for the kingdom of God, then called Israel, now called the church. And as a result of this faithful fortitude, they were victorious. They were more than conquerors through him 
who love them. Now, I've got one last question for us today, and that is, why is this passage here? Why here and why at the end of 21? It is a fairly prominent place in the conclusion of this book. Why is it here? Why do we have, for that matter, if you want to put it in New Testament terms, why do we have Hebrews 11 that we read earlier? I've got five answers to that question. Number one, to honor these men. The command is honor such men. To honor these men is why this is here. Number two, to worship God who gives the victory. David pours out the water that they bring to him as a drink offering to the Lord. It is, as it has been called, a spontaneous act of worship. When we see the deeds, when we know what is behind them, you look behind that and you praise the God. You praise the God whom they serve. You praise the God who gives them strength. And you give praise to the God who gives them the victory. As we have tried to point out from Joshua to Judges to First and Second Samuel, all of these victories point ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his victory that he accomplishes on our behalf. Number three, to show us that David wasn't alone. God was with him and God gave him these men. The anointed of the Lord has his people, his servants. It was true of David. It is true of Jesus. He's got his people. They're not perfect people, but he's got his people. Four, to show us that we too need the fellowship, the camaraderie, the God-given strength of our brothers and sisters. Now, these men did some individual individually extraordinary things. But they were part of a team. They were part of a band. And they recognized it. Number five, to spur us on. That's why this is here. To spur us on to love and good works. Rick Phillips writes this. One intended effect of this account is for readers to respond by thinking, maybe I can also do great things for God. Maybe I can also do great things for God. If they did, maybe you can too. And you do. And you do. It would be embarrassing to you for me to recount names right now of things that I hear that you do for each other and for the church. You do them, and you can do them. You can do great things for the Lord in the calling that God has given to you. Now, we'll take a moment and we'll state what is, I trust, patently obvious. I don't think, I feel really confident actually, in saying that I don't think any of us are going to be called to stand in the middle of a lentil field and defend it against an incoming horde of Philistines with swords. I don't think any of us are going to be called to that. But that said, you're called. You're called to the ministry that God has assigned to you, to the place that God has assigned to you, to the work with the gifts that God has entrusted to you. God has called you. And in that space, 
in that, whatever that space is, stand. If it's a little space, fine, stand there. If it's a big space, stand there, in that place. Perhaps we can say it this way. Besides recounting their names and deeds, the best way we can honor these men is by New Covenant imitation. New Covenant imitation. By running the race, by fighting the fight, by engaging in the what is for us the spiritual battle. I put the verse on the front of your bulletin that we've quoted before from 1 John. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Your faith. Your faith. When we stand together and say the Apostles' Creed, when you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you make that confession, this is the victory that overcomes the world when in the midst of this world you persevere in that faith so that when the anointed one, the Son of Man, returns to earth, he finds faith on earth because he has preserved his people and given victory, the victory of faith to the, in the midst of this fallen world to his people whom he preserves for himself. I'm going to leave you I said, I, this is the last question. This is going to be actually the last questions, but I'm going to leave them unanswered, and I'm going to leave them, us with these. What's the legacy that you will leave? What's the legacy that we will leave? Or to put it in the words of Revelation, what deeds will follow you? What, what deeds will follow you into the heavenly kingdom, or let's put it this way. If the writer of 2 Samuel was writing our story, what would he say about you? What would be the little line that would be included here? Let's pray. Lord, may your soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old. Jesus, to you be all the glory and the praise and the blessing and the honor. Any crowns we receive, we immediately cast them back to your feet and say that you are exalted, that you are the king, that you are the anointed one, the only head of your church, the one who has given all things to your people. And Lord, help us now. Help us to understand our lives in light of this to appreciate the places that you have assigned to us and to act boldly and faithfully for you, that your name might be honored in the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.